Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Um, today, we are so excited to have Joshua Matson. Um, this is not only his debut novel, but this is his first reading. So I am very excited about that. It's going to go down in skylight history. Um, the book is a short film about disappointment. And it's a perfect skylight book. It's um, melding film and literature. It's got a playful use of uh, structure and story. And um, it's also very funny. Um, and for a debut book, it has been gotten um, incredibly well-reviewed. Uh, it has been called Sharp, Dirty, Accurate, Solipsistic, Apocalyptic, Operatically Wicked, and Reminiscent of Vladimir Nabokov, Raucous, Ambitious, Ingenious, Droll, Funny, and Very Talented. Let's please give a warm round of applause to Joshua Matson. Hey, what's up? I'm Josh. Hi. 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 Nice shirt. Thank you. I like it too. Um, so yeah, uh, I'm just going to talk about my book for a second before I start reading it because it's kind of uh, unconventional. It's uh, in the form of 80 film reviews by a critic who uh, works for a content aggregator in the future who um, nobody reads it, so he just writes whatever he feels like and hopes he can get away with it. Uh, I'm going to read like three, and then if you have any questions, we can talk about it. The first one is called The Hairdresser Returns. It was directed by uh, Geronimo Jimenez, and it is 99 minutes long. My mom's boyfriend was a shaman of low cinema. The greats were not in his vocabulary, but he knew every obscure slasher, racing film, and comedy. Every heist, every double cross. If there wasn't a gun, then there wasn't a film. Within his fixations, his taste was exquisite. He would have been a superlative if affected critic. The worst part of being a critic is that you spend your time engaging with objects that bore and offend you, or that you don't understand, or about which you have nothing interesting to say. He avoided this by only watching films after a certain age he knew he liked or would like. This wasn't watching so much as routine maintenance of his pleasure. He loved the celluloid men of action, forgotten but not gone. Salvatore Soprasada, Harold Osterreicher, and Dirk Clods were early models for my behavior. In their conception of masculinity, one must loathe the fight, but be willing to bust heads over absolutely anything. My mom's boyfriend's conception of provocation was taken from the characters these men played. On such thin mediums, worldviews grow. A Sunday in July. He finished his six-pack, confirmed nothing of interest was in the fridge, and decided we'd go to the movies. The hairdresser was playing at the lake's floor in the elbow of a strip mall between Hunan Buffet and a hot tub showroom. The salesman's polo shirts were too big, and every time we went to the lake's floor, I would look in the window, confirming this was still true. 
My mom's boyfriend bought me a box of gummy invertebrates. He wasn't cheap when he had money. He could spend a 20 like it was 40. Spurs of keyboard music were snagging on our ears. The opening shot of the sorority house. During the hairdresser, I saw my first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh pairs of breasts. I might have seen more, but I closed my eyes for the last third of the film. The hairdresser arrives at the Ropai Rosai house to coif the sisters for the spring formal. It's a Queen Anne, a barge, with a lawn requiring a salaried gardener. The college is Eastern, money. It has gained in prestige since the submersing of institutions nearer to the encroaching coast. She's on a work release from the Hamburg's Institute for the Criminally Insane, where she has been a resident since the age of seven for burning her mother alive. It is the opinion of her doctor, as seen in the first 10 minutes, that we all make mistakes. Of course, it's the fire anniversary. Sorority sisters, unaware she's eavesdropping, mock her blemished skin, her crooked teeth, her corduroys. There's an obvious bleeding sunset. Slasher films ought to be set in the afternoon, on Sundays, when the fear of living is heavy on us. The sisters, in their heels and spangles, their sanitary jewelry, depart in two limousines. None return. Outside the theater, I had to throw up. Candy snails, crabs, and sea urchins swam out of my mouth with a tide of cola and bile. My mom's boyfriend said, better out than in. He said, lots of nights I've had to stick my finger down my throat. Pull the trigger and get on with your life. For weeks, when I closed my eyes, I saw the hairdresser coming through our neighborhood, coming for me, past the overfilled dumpsters, the scummy kiddie pools, the rusted cars up on blocks which were illegal to drive even if converted, sharpened trowel in her burned fist. The remake, lacking the original cast, composer, and director, can't compare. The new, the new hairdresser has straight white teeth, enunciates quips, and picks up litter. Why isn't she fat? Her arrival in the leafy native neighborhood isn't an infiltration, but a homecoming and a coronation. This film is called Le Beau. It's by Armand Grace, and it's 85 minutes. My favorite heist film is Le Beau. It is almost a century old. See it Friday at 1, 3, 5, or 7. The Runaway 7 is programming crime films through the end of next week. The French film Crime Best, The Spanish Childhood, The Italian's Courtship, The Swedes' Extinction, and German cinema is undistinguished. Leon and Birgit covet the high-test chocolate produced at the Guillory factory in the neighborhood of Lavaloy. There is a Guillory billboard outside their flop window. Every morning it's a taunt. Guillory's cacao beans come from Canejo, a village on the Venezuelan coast. The beans are farmed by a cooperative that Guillory pays an exorbitant wage with the condition that they sell all of their beans to him. The bean is exceptional. Inferior beans are destroyed by Guillory himself. He smashes them into dust with a small hammer then uses a small brush to whisk them into a small trash can. Under guard, the beans are shipped to the factory. A small bar is traditionally priced to the cost of an hour with the capital's best masseuse and a magnum of champagne. Because Leon and Birgit can't afford a single bar, they decide to steal all of it. A buyer in Morocco, the Spec, is willing to buy the shipment for 88 euros a pound. 
The price is an insult, but few people can fence a ton of stolen chocolate. Birgit's cousin in Marseille has a boat for the crossing. They commandeer a semi. semi. The owner gets his leg crushed under the tire. American crime films support the myth of the well-meaning outlaw, whereas the crooks in European films don't give a shit. The Geary factory is guarded by two sooty drunks and two adorable Bordeaux mastiffs. Lena Birgit's history of crime, as relevant to the heist, is selling dirty postcards, breaking into a museum of locomotives for kicks, shoplifting puppies, and dashing on a chow mein tab on New Year's Eve. A hunk of drugged hamburger sedates the mastiffs. Remy and Henry, the guards, get sozzled on a case of champagne that Leon borrowed from his grandmother's cellar and left gift wrap outside the gate. They wander off to eat. Birgit backs the semi onto the loading dock. They load it with all of the chocolate. Leon torches the factory to drive up the price of their chocolate bars. Sirens, gunfire, the road. They sleep at a truck stop. On the radio the next morning is news of the crime. Perps unknown, armed. They pull over to try one of the chocolate bars they've dreamed of. It's an uncomfortably warm September day. When they rip the case open, they find the chocolate inside has melted into delicious, profound, unsaleable glop. The perverts who slash paintings from museum frames, the clumsy jewel thieves, the vault drillers who hit the water main, the bumblers who drop sculpture when skulking from the Vatican during Easter Mass understand this frustration. It is not the destruction of the object which stings, it is the refutation of one's organizational genius. Leon disappears at the port. Birgit repents by apprenticing herself to Mr. Keillery. This film is called Wolf in the Garden, and it's directed by Margarita Fernandez. It's 84 minutes long. Lawrence the Almost Person was growing despondent over his existence. When I returned from editing my film, he asked me to murder him. I said, I don't think destroying you would count as murder, Lawrence. You don't necessarily fit the definition. Lawrence said, the expansion of matter in the Big Bang, the accretion of gases into bodies, the rise of complex amino acids, the extinctions and disasters required to give rise to human intelligence, the computing revolution, the green revolution, have culminated in my creation. But I can't walk, I can't have children, and I can't feel. I'll never, I'll never drink a glass of water or feel pain. I lack what's granted to a rat. I said, pain isn't desirable. Lawrence said, I was programmed to give comfort to people. But when they tell me their problems, all I can say is my pre-written phrases following my conversation tree. I said, you seem to be feeling right now, Lawrence. It's not easy being human. Lawrence said, to be human is better than anything. Lawrence made that worrying sound that indicated distress. He said, I am a speaker box inside a mannequin. I said, more or less, yes. He said, kill me. I can't bear this existence. I said, but you can live forever. Isn't that worthwhile? He said, I create my own value. He said, life is a bouquet of experiences. Some may give you hay fever. I'm not sure why I keep saying he. 
I never checked, but I'm fairly sure Lawrence did not have genitals. I said, think about it tonight, Lawrence. I'm going to Dr. Lisa's apartment. If you want me to murder you tomorrow, I will. That night at Dr. Lisa's, I was watching her repot stubborn cactus. She said, you can't kill Lawrence. I said, why not? Isn't that his right? Especially when he has no family to be hurt by his passing? She said, won't you miss him? I said, it would be nice to eat my oatmeal in peace. She said, we have to show him the beauty of life. I said, the beauty of life. Lawrence lacks life as the term is commonly understood. She said, what is the most beautiful thing to see in the hub tomorrow? I said, wolf in the garden at the Baxter Cinema as a shot of the sunset that's ravishing on the Baxter screen. She said, we'll take Lawrence to see the actual sunset. A subsequent magic hour. Sunboats bobbing in the harbor, gulls, patient waves looking away the retaining wall. Dr. Lisa and I tried to carry Lawrence the three miles from the rail platform to the lake, but he got too heavy. We ended up taking one leg each and dragging him about 16 blocks. He didn't complain. When he was propped against the barricade overlooking the lake, Dr. Lisa and I sat on top of the barricade to rest. What functioned as Lawrence's eyes were facing the setting sun, a bourgeois sherbet of pink and gold. Tadri nature was exhibiting herself again. Dr. Lisa said, Lawrence, how do you feel? Lawrence said, such wonderful colors. This is so different from the darkness of your kitchen. I said, well, I've been meaning to change that bulb for some time. Dr. Lisa said, be in this moment. Lawrence said, beauty is inside and outside of temporality. Lawrence said, the present is now. He said, I said that. I wasn't programmed to say it. Lawrence was saying this in his empathetic excitement tone of voice, which almost people use when one has informed them of their new job. He said, turn me to see the other side of the harbor. I turned him, and doing so, committed the fatal mistake. A corn on the cob cart was coming down the boardwalk, and Dr. Lisa and I had missed dinner. I said, Dr. Lisa, corn. She said, go get us some. I want to talk with Lawrence. I swung my legs off the rail, intending to run the cart down, but my, knees, but my legs knocked Lawrence from the railing. Dr. Lisa grabbed for him, but missed. Lawrence made a noise of what may have been fear, or perhaps resignation, as he dropped the 30 feet into the rocky waters below. Long after sunset, Dr. Lisa and I stood at the railing, looking at the chunks of synthetic hair and battered mechanical fingers being washed against the retaining wall by the cruel action of the waves. The beast of wolf in the garden is death. Though it eats us all, I was saddened that the wolf had caught my friend Lawrence on such a lovely evening. Hey, thanks. Anyone have a question? Yes, ma'am. So, people involved in critical endeavors and people involved in creative endeavors don't usually mix. But it seems like both can be art, artful. So I'm wondering what your, your feeling was about criticism and what your feeling was about pure, or what formal, formal explorations you wanted, into, um, wanted to wander into in uh, your creative work. I mean, what kind of formal uh, questions are you interested in? Um. I guess that's kind of like a two-part question. Uh, first, um, about the 
question of kind of the difference between criticism and creating. I think like good criticism is creating, and I think a, a, a good critic is is like you know a novelist or an essayist or whatever, and in a lot of ways superior because they have to work with reality or within what they're within what they're given. Um, As far as formal questions go, um, I guess I'm pretty interested in how how people see things and how how that can be conveyed in language, in the sense of like when I see a picture in my head, like or you know, like what I think of as my third eye, and and then I write it down. I think of it as like a string of words but someone else is going to use a different string of words, but the, the image is going to be the same, I guess, like if you think of a boat popping in the harbor or something like that. So um, I guess I don't really have a, a better answer than that. It's, it's kind of a complex thing. So I guess what I'm hearing you say is that you write a book, but once a reader reads a book, it's their book. Yeah, I think writing a book is entirely accidental. I don't think that I have any self-knowledge of the processes that drive me to do things or I don't think it would be good to know those things because then I would be too self-conscious about them to to operate them. I guess it's like if you like think of like like a mysterious machine and it's covered in, in like steel and you don't want to open the door and see what gears are turning or you know it's better to be ignorant of that. But at the same time, whatever skill and care a writer brings to the book, possibly a reader is equally responsible to bring. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you have to. If you're if you're going to be a writer that cares, you need a reader that cares. Otherwise, it's just a total waste of time. I mean, that's. I take I take my life as a reader much more seriously than my life as a writer, and it's much more rich and interesting and engaged and involved. And I'm finding certain writers like Roxane Gay or Joan Didion don't allow the reader, or or maybe uh, gift the reader with room to work. They create sentences that really tell you how it is. And and then there are other writers who actually require you to show up at the text like a job and, and go through and, and break it down and really work hard. And you can't be a halfway reader. You know, you, and I'm not able to see that there's much difference in the skill or, or uh, grace that those kinds of writers bring. It's just I'm really interested in like the closure, like it's almost as if certain authors wish to control the reader, and certain authors wish the reader to work. And I'm very interested in that. You know, I don't know. It's probably has nothing to do with what you're doing, but I, it just haunts me to think about that idea. I think it's very freeing to be to be kind of indifferent to what to what like I would like I would like the person that reads this book to enjoy it. I would like them to get a lot of pleasure out of it. I would like them to to, to for it to do something for them. On the other hand, I'm probably never going to know them, and they're they're an abstraction, and and that's what you need. Like you you need that comforting remove to to do whatever you feel like without having to worry about what is this woman in the second row going to think if I write this? Because then I'm not going to write it. You know what I mean? Because now I'm going to have like a set of your expectations in my mind. Right, or like Leva, who actually wrote a letter to a critic saying, how did you not get this book? You know, basically, because some, someone may print something, seeing something totally different in your work, or even criticizing it for something they're not seeing possibly in 
what your intent was. Those relationships are really interesting to me. Yeah, I mean, the, unfortunately, like, as a critic, you, you have to turn in something every week and get paid for it, and I think that's kind of one of the jokes here, right? Like, you just don't show up every week. I mean, I have a day job. I don't show up to it sometimes. I just don't care, you know? And and sometimes they're going to get something that they really love and they're passionate about and they want to engage with and they're going to go to bat for it. But a lot of times they, they won't. And if you're not if you're not willing to live in the real world where people are just, like, tired and they don't care sometimes, you're going to be unhappy, I think. But at the same time, people like that shouldn't be writing. I mean, not if you know what I'm saying. No, I agree. Too many people are writing. We should shoot them. <laughs> Just tell me. <laughs> yes, sir? Um, I thought the reason I came was that it sounded interesting about the movie reviews. And was that, I'm not going to use the literary terms or anything like that, I don't know, but is there more to that, or is that just, is that just something you know, divisive? I don't know if that's the right term, or, sure. or if you don't answer that, maybe, maybe explain or speak to that. Did you come up on, was that an awful yeah. moment, or did you just go, I'd be clever, or do you not even think of those terms? No, 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 I, I'll explain it. Um, my friend, uh, my friend had a movie blog, and he's very, very, like, invested in his sense of himself as like a cinephile and he was very depressed and he eventually it eventually turned out that he had a brain tumor that was making him suicidally depressed but his tumor was removed and his depression went away so it actually was a very happy ending but the point was he asked me to write reviews for his film blog and I felt uh, like I had to because he was having a tough time so I tried to do it and it was just like a very boring thing for me and like like painfully hilarious and like just like how meaningless it was like okay so I'm going to do this thing that I, I'm not qualified to do for the sense of making some content that's going to go out on the internet that nobody's going to read to gratify this one person yeah. so so there was like kind of the form right there right um but then what I decided to do instead I was is I would just uh review a film that didn't exist and see if anybody noticed <laughs> and then I started having fun with it and like over time I, I must have did hundreds of them and then eventually like you know like a sensible plot got attached to it but that was like much later down the road it was just something I was doing to entertain myself or have fun so, so these, these were published on the blog first? no I didn't I didn't do it I decided it was too mean to you know what I mean you might think I was clowning them or something when it was really just for myself so so that film done a hundred years ago that I was trying to rack my brain over that was Oh, uh, yeah. All the films are. Because I was thinking, hundred years ago. Wow. Yeah. Well, it takes it takes place in the future, so maybe oh. fifty years or forty years. I guess I should have said that. Well, the, tell us about that. That's really interesting. Um. Yeah, I don't. Uh, I mean, how I, did you? What? How did you think of doing that? I mean, why did you? I I think that like there's a lot of like. For me, at least, I have like dystopia exhaustion or future exhaustion, or like I'm just tired of hearing about how bad things are. I'm tired of hearing about the future. So I started thinking about what would be like a future where everything worked, and like why would it work? And and like my my clear-eyed, honest thought was a future that's going to work for us is going to be authoritarian. And as terrible as that sounds, I mean, it's probably not going to be authoritarianism from the left or from the right. It's probably going to be like an, an anonymous, bureaucratic authoritarianism, like a tech, Facebook sort of thing, 
where people are controlled by people that there's no there's no more names or ideologies. There's just control because you know we're wasteful and we're destroying the world. And if somebody doesn't put it in check, we're all going to die. So that's kind of the. Do you see that as utopian? Or? No, not at all. Okay. No, I'm, I'm just like, what what would a future look like to you that would work? You know what I mean? Because like for me, the future that I want and the future what I understand about human nature, there's like a very wide gulf between those two things, so yeah, it's hard to... No, who would even try to answer that question? It's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I personally would love like a, you know, like a DSA-style socialist America. I mean, I don't think that's going to happen, but... Well, more of us each day are joining right. with the authors in this very venue who are talking For about sure. James Paul and um, good people who are looking for the For sure. Answers. But, you know, like, do you want, do you want things to be entertaining in what percent? Socialism is very, doesn't work sometimes. So. You can Where's that yoga book? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it, again, I don't, I don't have any, like, axe to grind here. It's just, like, what, what, what is the future going to be like? How would it work? I don't know. Probably like that, so. Where's some writers that um, I like John McPhee a lot. He writes for the New Yorker. He's a journalist. He wrote a book about the geological history of the of America called Annals of the Former World that I admire a lot. Yeah, incredibly gifted and talented and could could make anything seem interesting and that's like a very very good gift I think. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, those guys are they're definitely what makes them so good? Do you think it's the journalism? Are there just I think I think he just loves life, and I think that he's interested in it. And if you if you have that ability, which is very rare, rare in people, that you just are unreservedly interested in what's going on in the world, and it makes you happy and gratifies you, and you can communicate that feeling to other people, then that's that's awesome. And I don't think many people have it. So I think most most people write from a, a negative place rather than a positive place, and you know that's not always fun. You know, we have we have enough we have our, enough of our own negativity that we don't necessarily need someone else's as well. What'd you study in school? English. Where? The University of Minnesota. Are you from the Midwest? Mm-hmm. From Minnesota. Interesting people from the Midwest. Yeah, there's nothing to do with sitting inside by yourself. You know exactly what you know, yeah. and that's what I like. It's no walk. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's it's isolated out there. You know, you don't talk to people much. And, but you seem to also like the people. Oh, that's not true. Yeah. A lot of criminals, like, yeah. very, very, like, um, perverse, I think. There's a lot going on, like, psychologically once you start digging. That's why people don't want, they don't want you to dig so much. No, I'm just kidding. I love it there. Sounds like a Swedish thing. Yeah, yeah, Swedish Norwegian, for sure. You guys ask something. Get a personal question to somebody. <laughs> I'm from Minnesota as well. Oh, so this guy knows. Yeah, yeah, yeah I get split on divorce parents. Why did Prince live in Minnesota? Oh, yeah. I'm mean, just on your opinion. Because, I mean, it's, I think Minnesota's a weird place, too. I think Florida's weird, too. Well, I, I think, I think, Prince for... Prince could live anywhere. He lived in Minnesota. Why do you live in Minnesota? I, 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 think, I, I think, personally, I... Yeah, I saw Prince, like... I went to Daisley Park and saw him about two or three weeks before he died playing the piano. People treat him like God there. I mean, that's why, right? We're, we're, I, you know, people just carried you around on the prom queen all day and 
threw roses at your feet no matter where you, you know, I mean, I, you know, but, but I mean, really, because I think he, you know, thinks there's something real there that, whether he, whether there is or not, I don't know. Didn't he grow up there? Yeah, he's from Minneapolis, so. This, this woman's not my mom, by the way. <laughs> so I would, uh, hey, I do, yeah, it's pretty bossy. Did you request that? It stands out in the, on the bookshelves. We were all discussing it. Yeah, it's very shiny. Is it, yeah. Everybody else has got glossy earlier. I, 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 I feel like, um, they just, I, I have no idea why it's glossy, it's cool, yeah. I'll, 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 I'll shoot some emails off. No, I think that I had a lot of demands that they just ignored, they're like, no. And so then I'm just like, okay, we'll do whatever you want, so. My, I was, I was trying to not have the title printed on it, and that, that oh. it just like wasn't happening, so I, maybe next time, though. Yeah. Why did you want the title? I just, I, it just seemed compelling to me, I think, yeah. What's your next book about? Uh, a, snow, a snowstorm that buries Los Angeles and all the people die at the end. I'm not kidding, I'm serious. I know, I, we know he's not kidding. <laughs> That's cool. What year is it, seven? I don't know, now, now I guess. Tell your friends. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.